Halashing for Halas? Want to bry or fine dine? Stay tuned to High FM on 101.9 Tuesday mornings from 11am for Essen Fresen Where it's all about the food Welcome to the Essen Fresen Show It's good to be back And I hope you've all had a wonderful, fulfilling last few days I'm joined with by Adrian Bugatti this morning So you've got the two of us And... Um, I was just thinking, actually, that we, we are so lucky to have such wonderful, symbolic and traditional food all set out for us every couple of months. Yeah. Just think about it. All the different dishes we get to experience, and whether you make them, how your boba made them, or you create delicious modern twists uh, to some of them, I'm sure there were some amazing meals on your yomta ta- tables. But as the cycle continues, we now go into Sukkot, where traditionally we eat stuffed foods like crepe stuffed peppers, stuffed cabbage leaves, and one of my favorite coming up, crumbed and stuffed tenderized mint steaks. And I'm sure that you say, why do we eat stuffed foods? Okay. Now, I, I was told the lovely thing. I don't know what your view is on this, Adrian, but mm-hmm. I was told once just as the sukkah hugs and protects us when we sit in it, so too we hug and protect our food by stuffing it and wrapping it and protecting it. Oh, wow. I, no, mine was not yeah. quite so beautiful. Um, <laughs> I've always known it, it was um, to have it plentiful and then nothing leaks out so that you have a full year filled with Brochers and semchers, yes. and nothing leaks out and dissipates. So it should be a rich year as well. Okay, so, so wrapped tightly. Yes. Okay. So that was mine. That was yours. Okay. Yeah. So obviously we're going to be sharing some lovely Sukkot recipes yes. with you. And um, I, I actually wanted to share, I've got a few that I, that I was thinking of, you know, doing starters Mains and desserts, mm-hmm. all wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I won't make is crepe luck. Yeah, no. Th- uh, you know, usually we ha- used to get crepe luck from my, my late mother-in-law. And yes. this t- this year, no crepe luck, I'm afraid. Um, just because it's too much like hard work. And she used to buy it for me and I'm too lazy to go to the shops. <laughs> now, mine's more... Mine's more, um, like, how can I say, a bit emotional. Pulls mm. at the heartstrings because yeah. I was making kreplach for Yom Kippur and my brother came to tell me how ill my father was. And I said, mm. I will never make kreplach again. Yeah. And I haven't. <laughs> okay, so we're off to an ad break. Chalashing for chalas? Want to bry or fine dine? This is Essen Fresen. It's all about the food. Yes, but, but I hope that the better health does start here yeah, <laughs> this year because so far we've been a bit chesty and a bit yeah. nasally. So forgive me, listeners, <laughs> but we'll get there. <laughs> okay, so now I think we're going to start. Have you got a starter prepared? Or? So, yes, um, I make something slightly different. Now, my family are very, very big soup eaters. Uh-huh. So I have a starter that can be a soup. Or it can be a dessert served with ice cream. Oh, wow. It's a very unusual one. And what's nice about it is you can use seasonal fruit. 
So it's a fruit soup. Totally different. Yeah. Um, and it's two cups of diced plums. Now, plums are not actually in season now. It's not, uh, they usually come out around about November. So if you can get, they're probably imported and expensive. So if you want to save yourself money, nectarines are in season now. So you can use nectarines instead. Or if you really want, which is not something I do, you can use prunes instead. So it would be two cups of either diced plums or nectarines and one cup of pitted prunes. Uh, either way, you know, so if you're going to substitute. Then a half a cup of either fresh or dried apricots. One cup of cored and chopped apple. You leave this peel on. A half a cup of chopped dried peaches or a cup of fresh. A half a cup of golden raisins. It's the, about the only time I actually use raisins in my cooking. Then the juice and the grated rind of one lemon. Two liters of water and either a tablespoon of potato flour or a, a maizena or cornstarch. So remember, you're going to sprinkle your fruit that you've cut up with some lemon juice to prevent it going brown. Now, you just need to remember that if you are using dried fruit, to just watch your water content because the dried fruit will absorb more water, whereas the fresh fruit already is liquid on its own. It is filled with water. You're going to place your fruit, your lemon juice, your grated rind, all into a large pot with the water and just remove one cup of water from that. You're going to boil it on high and then you're going to reduce it and simmer it on a gentle bubble for about an hour until everything is soft. You remove it from the heat. You're going to put your potato flour into that reserved one cup of water or your cornstarch, whichever one. You just mix it up. You're going to return it to the, the pot and then you can stir it and Reheat it on medium until it's nice and thick. The thicker consistency is up to you. And then you cool and refrigerate. Now it makes a, so if I'm going to serve it as a soup, as a starter, I would blend it all up, leave it a little bit chunky so it has a bit of texture to it. And then, um, I would probably put like slices of fresh apple on top or something just to give it that nice fresh crunch. And a green apple would be beautiful for that sour note. Or um, if you're going to use it over your ice cream as a dessert, don't blend it up then. It makes a beautiful fruit sauce to go over the dessert. Mm, and a nice with a vanilla ice cream. Sounds good. Mm. Okay, so now Yours? my starter is, um, of course, being wrapped because we want to wrap mm. all our food up. Okay, so I have two um Two options for wrapping. These are my barbecue chicken tacos. And the best thing about this is that it's so simple because all you have to do is debone it at barbecue, ready barbecue chicken. Oh, okay. I Chop like it that up. recipe already. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One version is wrapped in lettuce. And I like to use butter lettuce mm. for this. And um, it's softer and it's just easier to work with. And then I like to serve it. On a platter, and just have a big, nice round platter with the, with, um, the decorated, of course, with tomatoes and other little cucumbers and salad things. But what I do is I chop up the chicken, which is off the bone, and to that I add some grated pickled cucumber, finely chopped sweet pepper, finely grated carrot, and 
at the end, you can actually put avo in as well, mm-hmm. which also makes it lovely. A little bit of mayonnaise, and then I top it because I love textures. I love yeah. crunchy things, and my yeah. family love everything to have some kind of crunch on top. And then I put those lovely fried crispy onion rings or onion pieces that you can buy at your local supermarket. And then um, another way of doing this is taking the chicken and you can actually make it a a, a tar version. Mm. So what I do is um, I make up a sauce. Okay, so I take the the chicken, I fill it as I would, as I said before, with the carrots and whatever. And then I make up a sauce of um, a quarter of a cup of sesame oil, a quarter of a cup of regular oil, half a cup of soy sauce, two tablespoons of brown sticky sugar, just to take that little bit, that saltiness off, you know, the, the soya, some fr- fresh chopped coriander. And I just boil this up until the sugar dissolves and it, Sort of thickens up, whisk it together, and I put it in a bowl in the middle of the the tacos, the the lettuce tacos, and then in another bowl I put uh, a sweet chili sauce or something like that, and then everybody sitting in the sukkah can just pass this big platter along and help themselves. With these lovely wrapped, I mean, you can use uh, instead of using lettuce, you can use laffa or tortilla or whatever Mm. you want. But I've noticed that people after Rosh Hashanah um, want healthier food. Yeah. <laughs> We're all done with the starch. <laughs> we are. <laughs> um, and in fact, actually, uh, I did a vegan one over mm. Rosh Hashanah, and I took did a took some eggplant. I think friends or salad farm, one of them, do an eggplant mayonnaise, yeah. and I. Uh, Put that and 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 I added a couple of marinated peppers to it, wrapped that up, and put oh, that nice. on the plate as well. So there you have your vegan option. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And uh, also just another thing on the the ta- with the tar, I put some sesame seeds in the middle of the wrap as well, just to oh. give it that extra. That more Asian Asian feel. feel. You can actually put some um, noodles in the two minute noodles, boil them up, yeah. and you can add that as well. So that was, that's my starter. That's what they're all getting for so starters on Shabbos. That's amazing. So at least I don't have to cook it. I'm that's so that's the most important. of load shedding, I can't <laughs> tell you. <laughs> Last night we all sat. You, oh. know, you know how I had to cook everything? Uh, after the fast, okay, the power was out from mm. six to eight. I had to put everything onto my gas stove. And would you believe it, that it actually all cooked through. It was amazing. Yeah. Did lasagnas and stuff like that, and I cooked it through. By the time everybody was home, I love gas. <laughs> we were organised. This is Essen Fresen. It's all about the food. Ever wondered what happened to those wonderful Hamisha cookbooks of yesteryear, like the Singing Kettle, Pretoria Ladies' Guild cookery books, etc. So many more. Beautiful books created by the shawls, created by women's organizations as fundraisers. Well, unfortunately, they were never really preserved or republished. However, thanks to Gavin Baynard Smollin, South African-born public historian and NYU PhD student specializing in Eastern European Jewish migration, we can all breathe a sigh of relief As part of his master's thesis, he decided to digitize 
a collection of South African Jewish cookbooks from the 1940s. So, Gavin, I am picturing you this morning. First of all, welcome to Chai FM. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> Good. So, Gavin, I'm picturing this. Okay, you walking into your mom's kitchen one Pesach, seeing your mom following a beautiful food-stained recipe entitled Best Knedlach Ever, and after tasting them, you say, I need to get my doctorate in Eastern European Jewish cooking. Would you say that's how it started? <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Something like that. It was more, it was more the tegelach and the, you know, the babka and all of that. My mom will happily admit that she's more of a baker than a cook, but that definitely was the initial inspiration for all of this, for sure. Okay. So. Sure. So, I mean, talking about the family again, we're all pretty, food obsessed we talk about it all the time we eat we 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 sit at one meal we talk about the next meal which i'm sure is a common experience among um, a lot of us but yes i i always loved history i knew i wanted to do a master's in jewish history and um we were living in israel and i was at hebrew and i my semester i saw that there was a course in jewish food history so i thought well, what could be better than that? This is like, this is like my dream course. So I took that course with, um, uh, Anat Hellman, who later became my, one of my, uh, thesis advisors along with, uh, Louise Bethlehem. And yeah, it's just, food is just such a fascinating window into the everyday lives of, of ordinary people in the past, particularly, particularly women. And it's just such a different way and a refreshingly different way of telling history and writing about history that's not, you know, kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and diplomacy and, and all of that. Yeah. So, so yes, I, I, um, I thought maybe I'll write my thesis about something to do with food history. And I'd never, I'd never really considered doing South African Jewish history, but I, I came home, I saw these books on the, sh on the shelf, and I started paging through them, and they're just, there's so many different elements to them, and there's so much to explore, and that just kind of, it all started from there. Do you enjoy cooking, Gavin? Are you a cook? I do, I do. I have to admit that, that this project has been more fairy than, than practice, <laughs> but I do cook, and I, I particularly, I think, as, as you're saying, it's such a visceral way to connect to, to the Yontevim, to our ancestors, to the past. When yes. you're cooking and when you're eating these foods, it's the kind of connection that you can't get from reading a book or an article or yeah. anything else like that. Absolutely. I mean, you take a simple thing like, uh, let's say, chopped liver. I mean, the chopped liver, gehackte leber, as they used to call it. I mean, that's been going on from your dot, okay? But, you know, that is something also that we can't put into a food processor because it won't have the same texture to it. You know, it's got to be minced, you know? And there's certain things about our food that has such a beautiful um, innocence to it, can I say? Yes, and it's as as you know better than me. It's 
very time consuming um, <laughs> to cook this to cook this kind of food, but it's it's an experience and it's also something that women typically in Eastern Europe did together. Right. You know, there was it was it was a communal it was a communal activity, and I think that's something that maybe we should all bring back. I agree. You know, that we're not just isolated in our houses by ourselves, but that we make some of these really time-consuming um, heritage projects a real kind of family or community project to cook together. Yeah, I agree. In fact, I get all my sisters-in-law and nieces and my daughter, everybody involved, and my daughters-in-law, and uh, everybody, you know, has their particular um, dish that they make well. And that's what they they make for Yontov. So it is. There's something very special about about cooking together and all being in the kitchen together. It is. It's lovely. So now, most important is this incredible um, idea of yours to digitize all these books. So how did that all come about? So the first step in doing this research for this master's thesis was to actually find some of the books. So, of course, the first thing that you do is you go on the library website, you go on WorldCat, which is kind of a a site to search libraries across the world, and you start looking for the books, and it came out pretty dry. You know, Mm. there was maybe a a few here and there. Actually, um, my most successful trip was to New York. My wife is is, uh, a New Yorker. We live in New York now. And we were visiting for another Yantiv and the New York Public Library has an incredible collection of, international collection of Jewish cookbooks. So that, that got me started. But you know, that was 13, 14 books. So I then had to go on a mission to look for more books. And of course, the place where these books are found are on my mom's shelf. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, you know, a cousin's, a cousin's shelves, her friend's shelves. Yeah. And so, it was kind of an international family and friends effort, along with um, a lot of people who I didn't know, complete strangers, very kind strangers in Israel, where, where I was living at the time, to, to discover these books. And then, of course, and you know, I used them for my research, but then the next thought was, well, what happens to these books in a few years when the people who who you know, bought them or were given them and appreciated them. What happens when they're no longer here and and their kids, with all the best of intentions, don't really understand the meaning and the value and the importance of these books and don't have any interest in keeping them. And so, and this is especially true for, you know, there's some of the the big cookbooks like the International Goodwill, that Mm -hmm. there were thousands and thousands of copies printed. But what about the cookbooks produced in, you know, Kimberley or Pal or whatever it is that, um, some, you know, some of those communities are, are still there, some are not. What happens to those books that were, you know, maybe a couple hundred copies were produced and who knows how many still exist. So, and of course, I already knew how, how important they were for South African Jewish history, for Jewish women's history, for culinary history, that, you know, they're so rich. So that's what got me started on this, what turned into a multi-year project with a lot of help from a lot of other people to get these books scanned. Some were scanned in Israel, um, some were scanned in New York, and, and a huge proportion of them were scanned by the wonderful people 
at the Kaplan Center at, um, at the University of Cape Town, who put in, their team put in a huge amount of hours to get so many of these books alive, which I'm obviously very grateful for. So now, where would we go to, to find this? What, what website is it on? So it's sajewishcookbooks.org.za. Um, I have to, I have to, I had to practice saying ZA because I'm, now I'm an American. I'm used to saying ZA, which is just terrible. Okay. So tell, tell, was there anything interesting that you discovered while learning about, um, Eastern European cooking, Jewish cooking? Um, you know, main, mainly around the, the foods, the general foods that they ate. Um, of course, being like, beetroots and carrots and parsnips and all that and potatoes of course i mean today we've got mm. potato kugel potato latkes everything and um, was and was there anything that you really found fascinating any nice little stories that you can share with us around any of the yes okay yeah no sure i i think i mean one of the jobs of the historian that people appreciate less sometimes is that we investigate kind of preconceived notions and, and, and stereotypes and and ideas that are not necessarily that we, we try to make them a little bit more complicated than than they have been presented previously so an example of that is you know as South African Jews we all understand that most of us are Litvaks we're Lithuanian Jews we come from Lithuania and the cookbooks themselves um, the recipes are presented as these are traditional recipes they have titles like just like mama made these recipes were handed down from generation to generation and in a spiritual sense I think that's still true but what I discovered was that the source of these traditional East European Jewish recipes was actually a lot more diverse and eclectic and really fascinating than just being handed down from one generation to the other. So, for example, you see in the books the recipes for gefilte fish. So, you know, as you know, Litva gefilte fish is typically not as sugary. It's got more pepper in. And the Polish or Galician gefilte fish is the one with a lot of sugar and not so much pepper, but so you'd expect in the South African Jewish cookbooks, you'd see uh, gefilte fish recipes that were Litvak recipes. But actually, I, I counted them all up. Mm-hmm. I did a little analysis. And it turns out that the majority of the gefilte fish recipes were not Litvak gefilte fish recipes. They were very sweet. Ah, so Polish. I myself, okay. <laughs> yeah, they're Polish recipes. Yeah. So I thought, how, how is this, how is this possible when, when, the cookbooks say handed down from generation to generation. And I think the, the, the answer is, um, Dr. Veronica Billing, who has also done amazing research on South African Jewish women and, and Jewish, and Jewish, Jewish food. She's really one of the pioneers of this field. And a lot of my work is really standing on her shoulders. So in her work, in her, in her PhD, she, she mentions that South African Jewish women only really started producing cookbooks, their own cookbooks in the late 40s, early 50s, which is also what I discovered. And so where did they get their recipes? Where did they get cookbooks beforehand? They imported them from, oops, um, they imported them from America. Um, 
and you know they imported Yiddish cookbooks from America, and of course these American cookbooks were filled with recipes from East European Jewish immigrants who had come from all over Eastern Europe. Uh, you know the American Jewish immigrant population was much bigger and it was much more diverse than the South African one, and so you know these cookbooks. And so then South African Jews started cooking the American East European Jewish oh, recipes. Okay. And, and so the influence, the influence is really, you know, we imagine it as coming directly from Lithuania to South Africa, but actually a lot of it comes via America, which I find to be, um, incredibly fascinating. On the other hand, you do see in some of the, my favorite cookbooks are really the earliest ones yes. from the forties and the fifties. And you see, um, you see some really interesting examples of Lithuanian Yiddish in mm -hmm. the cookbooks. Um, so for example, you know, in, in more rural areas, Lithuanian Jews uh, spoke what other Yiddish speaking Jews derogatorily referred referred to as Shabbos Dekelosen, which, you know, Shabbos language, but they they couldn't pronounce the she sound. All the shes were sir, so they'd say Shabbos. Oh, okay. um, and so you see recipes for things like hamantasen yes. and uh, saltanases, which are, you know, shaltanases. Mm -hmm. um, and you see recipes, there's, there's also, they didn't say, they didn't say tsimis, they said chimis. Uh -huh. uh, and so you see recipes for prune chimis uh, yeah. in some of the earlier cookbooks. But then what happens is that because of this external influence kind of homogenizes everything, people are reading the American cookbooks. And so what happens is in the later cookbooks, all these unique spellings kind of disappear and it all becomes more, more homogenized um, and not so specifically Litvak anymore. So yeah, once you start digging, there's really just it doesn't so end. Many, it <laughs> yeah. Do, yeah, it doesn't end. Yeah, exactly. It's fascinating. I mean, I, I could talk to you for hours on this. I think it's important to remember that a lot of the recipes that we have are special recipes. You know, they were recipes for Yantiv and Shabbos, etc. The the everyday diet was very plain. Right. And I recommend anyone who's interested in this, I recommend reading the memoir of uh, Hirsch Abramovitz, I think his name is. Um, it's translated into English, and he has a whole chapter about uh, Lithuanian Jews and the food they ate every day. And, yeah, I think, I think we have to remember that we can... Um, the, the types of foods that were handed down with kind of the most special... Uh, food, but it's also fascinating to think about what did people eat every day, and it was a lot less meat than, as you say, than we eat now. Right. Absolutely, and I think I think it's also really important, and I talk about this um, in the kind of the learn section of the website. Yes. These books, uh, we need to also treasure them as evidence of, you know, women's. Um, you know, fascinating involvement in, in communal life in South Africa. Um, the, the amount of effort and work that went into producing these cookbooks, mm -hmm. um, it was enormous. But I think also, you know, women in the 50s and 60s were expected to stay at home. Yeah. They were expected to raise their family. 
there's a lot of there's a lot of material about you know how men did not appreciate men in, in Zionist organizations etc did not appreciate women's involvement you know they thought that women could you know collect go around with the JNF Sadaka box and, and do that but when it came to actually running the show you know they men would very much like to stay in charge thank you very much so so there was a lot kind of stacked against these women but the cookbooks were really a a way for them to kind of you know maintain that you know we're doing this as part of our kind of feminine or nurturing roles yes but actually actually these books are are, are, are kind of bridge they act as this bridge from the private sphere in which they were expected to be into the public sphere these were public projects the editors and the creators of these cookbooks got a huge acclaim as you say for their work um, some of them became household names even even the ordinary woman not the people who you know edited the cookbooks even the ordinary woman who contributed a cookbook yes. so many of these books have the name of the woman under the recipe so it was it was a public acknowledgement of her culinary skill and you know and knowledge and sophistication so yeah they really testified to women creating a place for themselves in the South African Jewish public sphere when they were not particularly welcomed by the men who were in charge. Well, on that note, I have got flashing lights coming up that I'm already five minutes over, but I enjoyed this so much. <laughs> and I'm just getting my teeth into it, <laughs> so to speak. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm sure I'll chat to you. I've actually went straight to my cupboards after I contacted you. And I found all these beautiful old books. I must actually contact you and give you the names of them, see if you've got them on your site, like the kitchen glove. Oh, good, please. I've got, uh, I think it's a lovely one. It's Dom. I mean, there's terrific books that I found. So I will, I'll send you a list. Gavin, it's yeah, no, thank you. Okay. There's always more to be discovered. Always. Thank you for joining us. And it was wonderful talking to you. Halashing for Halas? Want to braai or fine dine? This is Essen Fressen. It's all about the food. Welcome back to the Essen Fressen show. You have Sharon Lurie, the kosher butcher's wife, and Adrian Bugatti Hi. across from me. And uh, we're talking food. <laughs> we're talking <laughs> we're talking sukkahs. And wasn't that a lovely interview? Isn't it oh, amazing to know that we can just go to one site? What is this? Oh. SA Jewish? Um, I've got, I wrote it? it down. SA Jewish Cookbooks. .co.za. And you will get all the recipes that you can ever imagine. Um, and one particular recipe that I love and that we make every sukkah, and if I want to schmooze my husband a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> I make him uh, stuffed cabbage leaves and, uh, uh, sub, and um, or quite pincers as he calls yeah. it. And it's actually, it's, it's, Quite a common, I suppose if you make it sweeter, then it's more Polish. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and um, so I'll quickly give you our recipe. And what what's so nice about this is that um, you can, if you want to, you can, oh, I just lost it. Okay, I've got it again. Um, what you can do is you can use um, 
stuffed peppers. You can mm. use the same mincemeat and, and rice and whatever you're going to use in the same sauce over stuffed peppers because I know I my, do son, stuffed peppers. my son only eats stuffed peppers. My husband only eats cabbage. And for <laughs> those who don't eat cabbage, just unwrap them. <laughs> That's all you have to do. You can actually do stuffed tomatoes as well. I mean, there's quite a few things you could do with it. But it's basically, this is a a must on on my yontif table. And what's even better mm-hmm. is I found out oh, I made a whole batch that I can make it while, while there's load shedding, which is an absolute yes. pleasure because you can boil them on top. I've got a lovely deep frying pan with a heavy lid and I boil them on top and let them go a little brown. But anyway, here is the recipe. You need three large onions chopped. Now, Everybody knows I love onions, but I just find that onions, caramelized, give it such a wonderful taste. Mm. If you don't want to, you don't have to fry the onions, and you don't have to fry the one grated carrot. But um, this is for the mixture. But it's always it's always nice to have a caramelized onion taste to it. So you'll need three large onions chopped, 500 grams of minced meat, two cups of cooked rice, one large a finely grated carrot, one and why I do it finely is because some people don't like carrots. <laughs> you got to hide it somewhere. Uh, absolutely, <laughs> uh, one sachet of tomato paste, and um, some people add an egg. I don't. I've found that I've mm. never ever had to add an egg. So I fry the onions and the carrots for about five minutes, and then I take it off. Just you know, you don't have to if you don't want to fry them, and I take them off and allow them to cool. And then I add the mince, which is still raw. You add the raw mince, the cooked rice, and um, just mix it all together with the tomato paste. And there's your mixture. In the meantime, while you're making up your mixture, you can take a head of white cabbage and what happened to my recipe? Yeah, you see, that's the part I changed. And the only reason I don't use cabbage is I'm too lazy Ah, to wilt it. Okay. So I'll use the tomatoes and the peppers. It's much easier to hollow out those and stuff them with my beautiful rice and mince mixture than and cover do that. In the sauce. Yep. Okay, so then um I just core the the cabbage and I separate the leaves and I boil them all up and then I cut out that stalk. That stalk you mm. hard I agree. in the middle. Okay, you can actually take a rolling pin and roll over it if you want to as well. No. But um you like the quick and easy. Yes. <laughs> okay, then I put the meat about two tablespoons into the top of the cabbage, roll it up, and I put it into a roasting dish, and then I start making up the sauce, which is a tin of chopped tomatoes, one tin of tomato puree, half a tin of water, <coughs> excuse me, um, two to three tablespoons of syrup, if you prefer the, the Polish way, you can add a little bit more syrup. <laughs> a heap tablespoon of finely grated ginger and two cloves of garlic uh, and a teaspoon of salt. Mix that all together and I pour it over the cabbage leaves and the mincemeat. And um, if you really want to spruce it up, because as I told you, my family love mm. textures. So if you want to spruce it up, you can use the inner palm and sun-dried tomatoes in a herb and garlic with herb and gar- herbs and garlic or and just throw that over or you can use the friends marinated peppers they're really great mm-hmm. and for those who like it spicy with a bit of a kick you can add the salad from 
Romanian or the Turkish or Matbukha. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, the best part of this is that you can cook it, as I said, on the stovetop or you can put it in the oven. I cook it on the stovetop for about an hour on medium to, to low heat, so it just simmers. Um, and then I sprinkle with some toppings. Now, here are some ideas for toppings you can put on crunchy, um, you can put on some crunchy fried bacon. Mm. I saw that on a food network. <laughs> <laughs> you can put on um, beautiful um, rye bread crumbles. You can make croutons out of rye bread, mm-hmm. which is quite nice. You can make um, crush up potato crisps, and you just put that on just before you're going to serve it. So just for that little crunch. That nice little crunch. So... <coughs> That's my one of my main dishes. <laughs> so, so that's one of the things that that all the chefs tell us about is yes. that your food has to have not only the taste and the flavour, the smell and the texture and the freshness. Oh, so always like having and people are very scared to I think try for texture. They're never sure what to do. And you've just said crisps. I mean crisps by me are like the best texture to put on because they're in a packet. You open your packet, you crush them in your hands, get rid of some frustration, (laughs) and then sprinkle it over your food. And it just adds a nice flavor. And it's gluten-free. Well, that too. And you can choose the flavor of your crisps. Yes. Which makes gives it a little bit of extra taste or to to whatever you have. So like a balsamic vinegar, the balsamic vinegar chips would probably be beautiful on – this tomato base, if you want to have it, give it more Mediterranean type feel than Lithuanian or Polish, yes. more Mediterranean, more Italian even. Right. We'd put it on top. That would be a nice crunchy aspect. Um, one of the crunchy things that I've done with the stuffed, but mine are stuffed peppers, yes. is I haven't cooked the peppers. Ah. We've had the fresh peppers with the cooked mince and cooked rice. So... Oh, I see. So you cook it all separately so and I then you just all, stuff it in. And just stuff it into the fresh peppers okay. because a lot of my family like the peppers but not cooked. Okay. And then I use the sweet oh, peppers. I we, use red and yellow rather than green. What we do for our family. I know. Huh? <laughs> Let's go to an ad break. This is Essen Fresen. It's all about the food. Welcome back to the show. You've got the two of us. You've got Adrian and Sharon. And Adrian is now going to share a main dish. Yeah, okay. a chicken dish. A chicken so dish. We were just talking off air, Sharon and I, about the old days when we used to get turkey. Oh. Now, we can't do stuffed turkey anymore. And what I loved about turkey is that I could make one big turkey and it lasted the whole week. You just served it as cold meat or you made it into a stir fry. It was great on sandwiches. So it was like available for the whole week. And it just, for me, like I said, uh, the less work, the better. And in those days, I worked full time. So if I needed something that was quick and that I wouldn't have to keep cooking all forever. But I've got a stuffed roast chicken that is very different that I absolutely love. And it's a Gordon Ramsay recipe. And it's simple. It doesn't take a lot too much work. There is a bit of work involved, but the stuffing itself is just amazing. And it's not this heavy, Bready stuff. So the first thing is you need your chicken. So I'd say a good size chicken, run about two kilos if you can get one. Otherwise, double up on two smaller chickens, a lemon, some olive oil for drizzling, 
heaped teaspoon of paprika and you can choose which one. You can use your normal sweet paprika or you can use the Spanish smoked paprika. Either one gives an amazing, amazing flavor. And you stuff it with chorizo. It is olive oil. So it's about 150 to 200 grams of chorizo skinned and cubed. With the kosher chorizo, you often don't need to skin it because the casing is like it dissolves. So you can choose if you're going to skin it or not. Um, I often don't because it breaks as you're trying to skin it. And then it's just too much work for me. And it's never been an issue, I must admit. The uh, non-kosher chorizo obviously has a more like stiff uh, casing. So that has to be peeled off. Otherwise, it's just not nice to eat. An onion peeled and finely chopped. Two cloves of garlic peeled and finely sliced. I must admit, I take my cloves of garlic and I grate them on the finest grater or a microplane. And that's my diced garlic. I don't chop it. A bunch of thyme sprigs. You can use dry thyme. I do. Um, two tins of canelli beans, which... Um, is the white broad beans. Uh, you drain them, you rinse them. 200 grams of sun-dried tomatoes, preferably just plain in oil, but if you buy it in the herbs, it's fine. Just reduce the amount of herb you're putting into your stuffing. And then some salt and black fresh ground pepper. You're going to preheat your oven to 180. You're going to heat a little olive oil in a pan. You're going to add your chorizo and fry that for about three minutes. Until um, you can, it's nice and golden. You add your onion and you cook that for another minute or two until it's softened. Then add your garlic. Cook for a further couple of minutes before adding the leaves from the thyme sprigs. Stir in your beans and season well. Cook for a minute or two to warm it through. Then you add in your sun-dried tomatoes. A couple of tablespoons of the oil from the sun-dried tomatoes gives that that beautiful, rich texture and taste. And you combine that and remove it from the heat. Then you're going to season the cavity of your chicken with salt and pepper. And then you're going to fill it with your chorizo stuffing that you have just cooked. And to keep it all inside, you're going to take your lemon and stuff it in so that it doesn't fall out. And then obviously tuck any excess skin over so that, you know, it keeps everything nice and moist inside. Going to drizzle your chicken with some olive oil, sprinkle your paprika over, season it with your salt and pepper. Rub some more oil into the chicken skin. You want to spread that seasoning over the whole chicken. Don't miss a part. You want that beautiful flavor. Then you need about 200 mils of wine and some water. So... I often use, if I'm not using the 400 mils of wine, what I will do is use like a chicken stock or Mm. a beef stock for those who don't want the wine. Remember, the wine is not going into your food. It's sort of cooking it and giving it that like almost uh, like a rich. Yeah, it's a rich, it's almost like a steaming uh, the process. alcohol cooks out anyway. Yeah. Mm. Then you're going to uh, put your chicken on top, cover it with some remaining thyme, cover with foil and roast for an hour. After an hour, remove the foil from the chicken, baste with the juices, turn your oven up to 200 and roast for another 25 to 30 minutes until your juices run clear from the thigh. And then you serve. And you can 
the stuffing can be served as a side dish. You don't have to worry about sides. It is beautiful, rich, and so easy to make. And that is us for that's us the for the d- week for the week yeah for the next two weeks yeah, yeah. so enjoy <laughs> we'll your see Sukkot. You after Sukkot. Oh. <laughs> yes have a wonderful Sukkot and um, a healthy healthy year and you too and thank you Craig I never yes. say thank you to Craig I always forget Craig is the one who keeps us on time yeah exactly. <laughs>